This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Chip War episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. Here with... Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are talking about semiconductors this week. This is a subject we haven't talked nearly enough about, given its absolutely central importance to absolutely everything on the planet. Um, One of the reasons that we haven't talked nearly enough about it is because we haven't had the perfect person to come on and talk about it. But now we do. Chris Miller, introduce yourself. I'm... Chris Miller, associate professor at the Fletcher School and author of a new book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And you just won the FT Book of the Year Award. That's right, yes. Which which means your book is the best book that was published last year. <laughs> According to the FT, I guess. Well, congratulations on that. We will talk a lot about your book. We're talking about war and weaponry. We're talking about globalization versus internationalization. We're talking about quantum lithography and we're talking about Moore's law. We have a whole bunch of really interesting stuff coming up. But basically, if you want to understand the most important factor that has driven technological advance for the past 50 years and probably will for the next 50 years, you should be listening to everything coming up on Slate Money. So, Chris, you have written a book, it's fascinating, about basically the intersection of the evolution of semiconductors and how they've become more sophisticated over the years and national security. That's right. I I started actually trying to write a book on the arms race during the Cold War, wanting to understand how missiles developed. And I came to realize that the interesting part of uh, that question and the driver of development in military technology was ever more advanced electronics. And if you dig into military systems, just like if you dig into cars or smartphones, what you find is a lot of semiconductors inside. And when I realized that the first semiconductors emerged out of missile guidance systems, uh, I began to understand that my my existing uh, knowledge about how the world worked and how the global economy functioned was missing something incredibly important, which was the central role that computer chips have played. And and like if I can oversimplify massively, um, the United States had better chips than everyone else from sort of the tail end of the Vietnam War onwards. That gave it a significant advantage over everyone else um, until now, basically. And one one of the theses, if you're both perhaps correct me if I'm wrong here, is that like now that the semiconductor industry is so incredibly globalized and with with important companies in every part of the world that idea that the that the US could have a big semiconductor moat over every other con- country seems a little bit like that's not going to be able to last much longer well i think it's an open question as to whether it can last longer the the status quo right now is that advanced chip making requires inputs, materials, software, chip designs from a number of different countries, the US, Japan, Taiwan, 
the Netherlands, but all of them are U.S. allies. The big shift over the past uh, couple of years is that China has been trying to make itself a major player in semiconductors. And still today, it's fairly far behind in a number of critical spheres, but it's trying hard to catch up, having some success uh, in doing so. And if it does succeed, then it will uh, likely be able to apply those advances to military systems and to intelligence systems uh, and therefore close some of the gap with the United States. When I read the book, which I really liked, I was came away less worried as an American about losing out, losing the chip war than I did coming into the book. Because for all the worrying over chip manufacturing, which I guess is, as you write, mostly the, the, the highest end chips are manufactured in Taiwan now, and that's like a big part of concern, and we're trying to reshore that to the U.S., even though the U.S. doesn't manufacture the chips, U.S. companies play a big role in designing the chips and the highest end tech comes from the U.S. So this idea that we're like losing this war, this chip war seems maybe overblown. Yeah, I think if you're focused solely on the question of is the U.S. positioned well to make money in the semiconductor supply chain, the answer is clearly yes. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of really successful and profitable uh, U.S. chip firms. Um, the risks, I think, are, are not in that sphere, but in two different spheres. One is that the entire world is critically reliant on Taiwan to produce our most advanced ships, which is problematic if you think the risk of war is rising. Uh, and two, as we discussed at the outset, the U.S. lead over uh, its primary geopolitical rival, China, is declining. It still exists, but it's much smaller than it was a decade ago. Oh, when you say lead, do you mean lead in terms of like military materiel? Well, I would say first lead in semiconductors, but then I would posit that second, whichever countries have an advantage in computing power, in other words, chips, are going to deploy those advantages to intelligence and military systems. I think there's a direct relationship between the two uh, that, that history shows is pretty much ironclad. Um, from the first computers that were deployed during uh, World War II to uh, crack German codes by the British to uh, the first computers in the U.S. that were designed to uh, calculate artillery trajectory to the use of supercomputers in the 1970s to track Soviet submarines. There isn't a, a great power in world history that has had advanced computing and not tried to apply it to intelligence and to military systems. Right. But I mean, all you need to do is look at Afghanistan to show the like, you know, that doesn't get you everywhere, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Computers can't solve um, all problems. I think for certain types of problems, computers are very, very effective at solving problems. So um, if you look at intelligence, if you look at weapons design, um, if you look at uh, guiding autonomous systems, um, there's a number of spheres that are quite plausibly going to be very important, already are important and will be increasingly important in uh, strategic competition and military power that are incredibly computing intensive. Yeah, in the book, you know, you outline a lot of different scenarios that could happen with the conflict between Taiwan and China. What do you think is the most likely? And how does that affect the semiconductor industry globally in the U.S. specifically? So the, the most likely scenario, I guess the question is what time horizon we're talking about. If we take a 10-year time horizon, I think the most likely scenario is that war is avoided in the Taiwan Straits, um, that China fails to catch up. Uh, in terms of reaching the cutting edge uh, in shipmaking. And the U.S., Taiwan, Japan, and others uh, retain both their technological lead and as a result, also their collective military lead uh, over China. 
Um, but my confidence in that prediction is a lot lower than it would have been five years ago. In other words, the, the likelihood of war, I think, by any estimate, is higher than it was uh, five years ago. And China's advances over the last 10 years have been quite impressive. Um, not complete, but they've made real progress. So what happens like if China invade, successfully invades Taiwan somehow? Um, like what changes? Presumably, no one in China particularly wants TSMC, the big semiconductor fabricator in Taiwan, to go out of business. It would go out of business on day one of the war. Uh, the moment fighting starts, uh, TSMC's facilities would stop producing and would never be reopened. We're talking about the most complex, the most expensive factory in human history uh, with the most expensive and precise machine tools in human history. Uh, there is no way a semiconductor facility is going to survive a war. And even if it did, TSMC's facilities in Taiwan only function uh, because they're able to import tools and materials from Japan, the US, the Netherlands, and other countries. So there's a 0% chance that China can, in a war, acquire TSMC's capabilities. The risk is not that they acquire them, but that they knock them out. Uh, and the world, which today relies on Taiwan for the production of over one third of the new computing power we add each year, if that disappears, the entire world economy heads into a deep manufacturing depression because it's not only smartphones or PCs that we couldn't produce, it's it's autos and dishwashers and microwaves. But that, but that's, that's a big reason for China not to start a war, right? Because China would be hurt just as much as anyone else, where those Taiwanese chips are a key input into, what, most of China's exports. That's right, yeah. So mutually assured economic destruction, if you will, is a, a force that mitigates against conflict. Um, but I think our confidence in that has got to be lower than it was several years ago. I mean, it was a it was a bad predictor, for example, of global politics in 2022. It was a horrible predictor because Angela Merkel's energy strategy was predicated on the thesis that energy interdependence with Russia would make Russia more amenable to cooperation with Germany. The result was the opposite. It went so far that Russia, it appears, blew up the pipelines that connected uh, Germany with gas. So I, I don't think uh, complete faith in mutually assured economic interdependence is a very wise position to take. I think we can say it, it's plausible that will work. It might work. Um, but anyone who says they're highly confident it will work, I think, is uh, vastly overstating the evidence. And I think if you look historically, it's not just 2022. You can go back to Britain and Germany right before World War I large trading partners, huge foreign investment links, portfolio capital flows, they all went to zero uh, very, very quickly right after August 1914. So it's hard to find good historical evidence for the extreme confidence that most Americans, for example, have uh, in uh, trade and investment flows guaranteeing peace. And, and you are, as they, as they say in, in Britain, an old China hand. So um, like when you talk to people on the mainland, when you talk to Chinese folks, what's what do they think of this mutually assured economic destruction argument? Do they buy it or are they completely unconvinced by it? I think it depends on who you speak to. I think business elites in every country uh, certainly hope that it's true. Uh, the, the question, though, is, is probably not what business elites think because they're usually not making security policy. The question is more, what do the security services think? and What do the political elites think? And I think we've got to acknowledge that there's a fair amount of uncertainty, to be honest, over uh, what drives uh, Chinese elite political thinking and what drives uh, Xi Jinping's thinking personally. Uh, there are very few people that have 
correctly predicted all the twists and turns, for example, of China's zero COVID policy this year. <laughs> including, uh, including Xi Jinping. Yeah. <laughs> including Xi Jinping. And so, so I, I, I think we've, we've got to kind of put uncertainty at the center of our analysis. But if, if there's uncertainty over whether or not we're going to have access to semiconductors next year, that makes me pretty nervous. And so even if your estimate of the risk of war over the next decade is 20%, let's say, well, 20% times a estimated cost of many trillions of dollars ought to make you pretty interested in this question. So um, the U.S. in the fall passed the CHIPS Act. I think it's like $284 billion or something. And part of that's going to spur manufacturing in the U.S. How does that, does that at all change the equation long term for if the scenario you're talking about happens, can the U.S. then pick up the slack? On the one hand, the, the around $40 billion of manufacturing incentives that the CHIPS Act is going to spend is small relative to uh, the capital expenditure in a single year that the global industry um, uh, spends. Um, on the other hand, I think if you look at the CHIPS Act, not on its own, but next to what the EU is about to spend on its own CHIPS initiative, what the Japan is already um, spending, what India, what Korea a number of other countries are spending, uh, what you find is that there's a big increase in capital expenditure uh, outside of uh, Taiwan and China. There's a big increase inside of China too, which we can discuss. Um, but the result of that is that there will be meaningfully more capacity uh, outside the Taiwan Straits in five years time uh, than there would have been in the absence of the CHIPS Act plus the other countries' policies that I discussed. Now, is that enough to eliminate the impact of a crisis in Taiwan? Absolutely not. Um, but is it an insurance policy that I'd like to have given the risk that I assess and the relative cost of the CHIPS Act? I think so. Uh, and when you buy an insurance policy, you don't expect it to be perfect. You don't expect it to pay all your costs, but you look at it as an expected value equation. Uh, and that's exactly the right way to look at the CHIPS Act, I think. You do have a fascinating bit in your book, a lovely little anecdote about, I think it was Mark Strang, saying like, if I have a machine that breaks at one o'clock in the morning, then, you know, in America, they'll fix it first thing in the morning. And in Taiwan, they'll fix it by two o'clock in the morning. And that, that kind of like, huge focus on efficiency. One one of the th phrases that comes up over and over again in your book is cutthroat competition, that there's just like everyone is seeking any tiny edge they can get over anyone else. It does seem that small gains here and there, what seem like they might be small gains here and there, do wind up having existential consequences for chip manufacturers. Well, they're certainly important. I mean, existential, I'm not sure, um, because every chip maker is going to be facing the same pressure over the next five or 10 years to uh, rejig the geography of their production. There's just going to be more chips made in more expensive locations. And so in some ways, that levels the playing field between chip makers. Um, will it feed into higher prices for your iPhone? On the margin, it will. But we're talking about, I think, on the margin, if you... Um, if you ask what's the what's the share of your iPhone that is due to chip manufacturing, it's rel a relatively small number. And so if prices for that specific segment go up by a couple percentage points, that's not going to be a decisive factor in whether or not you upgrade your iPhone. So how would you describe uh, China's uh, strategic response to these export controls? What are they doing primarily? I mean, you, you mentioned in the book that they're moving toward open source architecture, so they're not relying on Western designs. Um, what else is happening? Well, China's in a really tough position right now. And part of the problem, I think, is that the government hasn't listened enough to its tech sector. Um, there are steps that China can take to try to find ways around these controls, but 
the key thing that China lacks today is the precise machine tools needed to manufacture chips. And today, the most advanced machine tools are produced by just a handful of companies in the U.S., Japan, uh, and one firm in the Netherlands. And domestic Chinese competitors are just miles behind in terms of the precision uh, at which they're able to manufacture. And so there's no sort of open source way around that challenge. You either have the tools or you don't. Uh, and right now, China doesn't. And it's going to be a very long time, I think, measured in years before China is able to make much progress at all uh, in acquiring these tools. And if you've spoken with someone in the Chinese chip industry uh, off the record, you know, in the last couple of years, they would have admitted that. And they would have said, we're making progress, but we're making progress thanks to the fact that we're able to access the best tools and components from the international uh, semiconductor ecosystem. Uh, the problem was that China's government wasn't, I don't think, listening enough to their tech sector. Uh, and they thought self-sufficiency was going to be viable far sooner than it actually uh, was, which is why China's government has been pushing in a direction that is, I think, not all that practical. Uh, and that's why there's, I think, a wave of pessimism uh, right now crashing over China's tech industry and certainly the semiconductor segment of the, chap of the tech industry about what prospects actually are for catching up. Can, can you talk a little bit about the wave of sort of dragon slaying that seems to have overtaken the American government um, over the past five years or so, the, there was a really quite startling move from the sort of Davos consensus of globalization is good to the situation we're in now where, you know, a dumb app like TikTok is considered to be a national security concern and is likely to get banned. And we've, you know, shut down Chinese manufacturers, as you as you recount in your book, Xinhua was shut down by America just because it was Chinese, basically. Um, Huawei is a shadow of its former self um, because the, the Americans considered it to be a strategic threat. Like when, when and why did that shift happen? So I think underlying a lot of the excitement about globalization from the 1990s up to the last couple of years was an assumption that wasn't really recognized, but was widely present in the US and Europe, Japan and elsewhere, um, that globalization wouldn't create shifts in the geopolitical balance. Uh, and in the 1990s and 2000s, that was an easy assumption to make because the US was the world's unrivaled uh, military power. China was far behind. And anyway, most Western leaders and most Western elites sort of assumed um, that China was going to uh, move closer to Western political uh, thinking anyway, and so wouldn't really challenge, um, challenge the US or the West in their position at the top. Uh, and I think around 2015 or so, that those assumptions began to be called into question for the first time. Um, both because China's military power grew and grew and America's didn't, especially after the embarrassments in the Middle East. Uh, and second, because uh, Xi Jinping uh, took Chinese politics in a much more openly authoritarian uh, direction. Uh, and it was no longer really viable to tell a story of China evolving in a positive way uh, as it had been under Hu Jintao. Uh, and so those factors combined, I think, to create this rethinking of globalization Whereas today, I don't think that Western leaders are really um, questioning globalization. They're just questioning China. Um, you still see lots of globalization in terms of Japanese investment in the U.S. and Taiwanese investment in Europe, et cetera. Uh, it's just China's role in it because there's concern uh, that the existing trade framework, the existing investment framework and technology transfer framework was allowing China to grow in power in ways that made Western elites uncomfortable. 
would would you agree that um tiktok is a national security concern or is that like a little bit weird i mean i think we should assume that every government is going to uh, use whatever data it has and whatever computing power it has to spy on its adversaries. And th- that's just the history of governments and technology. Or in the case of China, its own population. <laughs> well, th- that's that true. But even if you even if you step out of, of, of the unique aspects of Chinese governance, it's just a fact uh, that every government, you know, since the days of telegraph cables have tried to tap into telegraph cables, tapping into undersea cables, tapping into uh, phone networks, that's just what governments do. And like it or dislike it, uh, that's the reality. Uh, it seems like everything we've learned from the Snowden revelations of a decade ago confirms that the U.S. government is undertaking similar uh, espionage operations. Uh, and so the assumption that China wouldn't do the same seems to me a really hard to justify assumption, especially when you consider, Felix, what you sure. mentioned about what we know about China. So so like assume they, they are getting all manner of information about what kind of videos I'm watching on TikTok or even about like, you know, the the information that my phone is capturing about me. They know what I look like, my facial features, whatever. Like, have, have we reached the point, and I guess this is actually a, a semiconductor question, ultimately. Have we reached the point in terms of computing power that, we, that we've reached the level of computational sophistication that the Chinese government could take that insane quantity of data and extract meaningful signals out of it that would give it some kind of a geopolitical advantage. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, intelligence agencies around the world are investing more and more in trying to acquire data uh, and uh, understand it. Uh, and so it seems like most of the world's intelligence agencies believe that there's a lot of value in getting access to data, consumer data, civilian data, as well as uh, more kind of unique or niche uh, intelligence data. I was really struck in your book when you talked about... Um computing power and weapons and how in the first Gulf War kind of the whole world was kind of dumbstruck by the power of the the United States's weaponry at that point, And that was all powered by chips. Um, is there a potential for that moment to happen again with, with that kind of weaponry or is now um, the real advantage is moving to what you and Felix were just talking about, you know, the capacity to spy or process data? Well, I feel it's, it's happening right now in Ukraine, right? Like the, the Ukraine fighters are using weapons, you know, javelin missiles with chips that the Russians don't have and they're destroying Russian targets much more efficiently than, than vice versa. So I, I think it's it's a little bit more complex than that because if you take a, a javelin missile, you know, there's no chip in that that is more sophisticated than what's in your iPhone, and and quite the opposite actually. Uh, and today, just like your iPhone knows where you are within a couple of uh, feet, so too it's easy to guide a missile um, from a chip perspective within a couple of feet of its target. Uh, now it gets a bit more complex if you've got a drone, you want to fly it within a couple of feet of its target. It needs to know how to fly. You got to train it to fly that way. And then when you start layering on GPS jamming, which is widespread in the battlefields in Ukraine and other types of electronic warfare to blind it so it doesn't know where it is or who it's communicating with, uh, having access to more computational capacity and, and also some of the unique types of semiconductors that are um, used in communications and sensors becomes quite useful. And so there's a lot that differentiates you know, a drone you can buy on Amazon to a drone the U.S. military um, would deploy. Yeah, the ability to get to their location is 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 not um, is, is not as simple as it might sound, um, but I think actually the the next generation we should be thinking about is well what happens as we apply 
more impressive artificial intelligence to military systems um, because it's going to happen. Uh, and the question is, what does that look like? And, and the honest answer is, in some ways, we're not yet even really sure. Um, but I, I think, you know, anyone who's played around with chat GPT uh, realizes, you know, there's some really interesting capabilities here, which could be used for good or for uh, otherwise. And you, I think you probably want to be confident that uh, you, your government uh, has access to more advanced technologies than rivals, or at least the ability to try to uh, plug them into military systems before adversaries do. Would I be wrong in, in my assumption? Because I've had this assumption for like a few months now that the one of the main reasons why the Russians have been struggling more or less from day one in Ukraine is because their technology just isn't that good. Is yeah. that not right? I, that, I, I think that's right. Um, but I think it's a complex story. Um, you know, why is their technology not that good? is a mix of the hardware is not that good, the software is not that good, uh, when they operate together, it's not that good. It's it's not as though the Russians are missing one specific component and then it would become better. Uh, it's a it's a complex system, and so there's lots of different components uh, that the Russians are are missing or have bad versions of, which leads to a system that doesn't work very well. Does China have all of that already? Well, we we don't know. I, I think it, it it's a hard question to ask in the abstract. I think. Um, you know, anyone on the street would hypothesize that uh, China's got better tech and computing hardware than Russia, mm-hmm. uh, and that China's got better software design capabilities than Russia. Now, does that does that feed over directly into military spheres? Well, it's probably more complicated because there are some unique military spheres like undersea warfare that don't really have civilian uh, analogs and so might operate differently. Jet engines, another kind of unique sphere. Um, but um, but it certainly seems like China's got a better starting point than Russia to harness some of these technologies for military purposes. What we do know uh, is that when it comes to making the most advanced chips, uh, China is still meaningfully behind what the U.S. plus Taiwan uh, can produce. And that's but, but meaningfully ahead of Russia. Correct. Correct. Far ahead of Russia. Which I wanted to ask you about this. Earlier this month, there was a summit meeting between Xi and Putin um what's can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and and what that means um you know for russia at least to maybe potentially get up to the level of china if not the level of the united states when it comes to technology well the the russians are ever more reliant on the chinese um in macroeconomic terms in in civilian technology terms um but to talk about military technology requires zooming in on what exactly we're talking about. Because there are certain spheres in terms of defense technology where the Russians are still ahead of the Chinese. So aircraft engines, Chinese can't make good jet engines, the Russians still can. Um, submarines, seems like the Russians are probably uh, still ahead. So it's, it's, it's again, it's not a simple thing, technology that can be transferred. There's lots of different types of technology and they'll get transferred in different ways and plug into systems in different ways. And so it's, it's a complex and nuanced picture. But certainly the Chinese can provide some components that the West used to provide 
and is now trying to cut the Russians off from. And so a big challenge, I think, for Western uh, export control enforcement now vis-a-vis Russia, now that we're trying to prevent Russia from accessing all sorts of high-tech equipment, is can we also stop China from selling uh, Russia that equipment? In a lot of cases, it's illegal under U.S. law for Chinese firms to sell Russia certain things because Chinese firms are producing them using U.S.-produced tools. But our ability to actually stop those transactions if they're happening directly between Russia and China is much more complex. And can you just like zoom back a bit and explain like is is being nice to the Russians something that China wants and why would they want it? Explain the relationship between those two countries a bit. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't really say that the Chinese are being nice to the Russians. I'd say that they're taking advantage of the fact that Russia is in a pretty weak negotiating position right now. and China's buying discounted oil from the Russians. It's buying all sorts of discounted raw materials from the Russians. And if you didn't have any sort of moral or political uh, views on the Russia-Ukraine war, you'd be doing the same thing. And I think that's exactly where Chinese leaders are today. So the the sort of the hype about China and Russia banding together and forging a new world order <laughs> um, is overblown? I, I think it is. I think there's no new world order that's emerged. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's cooperation. I mean, it, I think the interesting thing is there's, there's more, there's more direct military cooperation between Russia and Iran mm-hmm. that we're aware of than between Russia and China. Is it just leftover um, paranoia from the Cold War? Do you think? Well, I think it's it's reasonable to be just given the size of Russia and China, it's reasonable to be focused on the issue of their relationship. So I don't know if paranoia is the the right word. Um, but yes, I think China's been less helpful to Russia than Russia might like. I want, I want to get a little bit nerdy um, when it comes to chip manufacture, because you, you devote a large, pretty large chunk of your book to this um, technology called EUV, which is what extreme ultraviolet, um, and which was developed at astonishing expense and which underlies the most advanced chip manufacturing that we're doing today, mostly in Taiwan, but with machines made by a Dutch company with components made in San Diego. It gets very complicated very quickly. Um, but the question I have is, like, you, you talk a bunch about how TSMC has been really good at using these machines to make um, fantastic chips. And also about how, like, Intel hasn't, um, and how there was another American company, Global Foundries, that kind of tried and failed. That just having the machines doesn't seem to be enough. There's something else. And a lot of your book seems to be, at some, at some level, you kind of say, well, there was something cultural or structural, like, or a little bit vague or hand wavy, and it just didn't work very well. And can you talk a little bit about those? The, like there's a lot of just like almost managerial um, inputs into making chips. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think that's crucial to understanding what we mean when we talk about technology, because we're talking not just about devices, but also the management of different tools to make those devices. And it often is the the management or what people in the industry often call the secret sauce of TSMC uh, that that explains why they're ahead of uh, their rivals. I think part of the the challenge with chip making is that you've got not only one ultra precise machine tool, but you've got a whole suite of them that you need to make chips. Some of them shine extreme ultraviolet light at chips, others lay down 
thin films of material, just a couple of atoms thick. Others etch uh, canyons into uh, the silicon, just a couple of atoms wide. And so all of this is happening uh, uh, thousands of times uh, on any given piece of, uh, of silicon to make uh, the, the chips that eventually emerge. And so you need to use all these tools precisely uh, together. And there's no pre-existing recipe to do so. You can't just or download the recipe of the manufacturer because the manufacturers don't know how to use the machines uh, to their, their optimal capability. And so it's sort of like a, a, a constant science experiment at TSMC is that how do you use all these tools most effectively? Wow. So um, ASML is, right, is the, is the Dutch company that makes That's right. the, the lithography machines. You're saying that TSMC is actually better at, making, at using ASML's machines than ASML is. That's right, because ASML knows how to make the machines, uh, but TSMC knows how to use them. And and when you talk about their relationship uh, or the relationship of many of the tool makers to the chip makers, it's it's really a, a, a surprisingly deep partnership. Um, so, for example, in, in TSMC's facilities in Taiwan, they'll have ASML staff permanently on site, uh, tweaking the machines, fixing problems that arise. And ASML is not the only company uh, that makes these types of tools that has staff permanently on site. And when ASML or the other uh, toolmakers are designing their next generation of tools, they're designing them hand in hand with companies like TSMC or Intel, uh, because those will be the biggest customers and because they need to make the tools work in a way that will fit in this much broader production process that these companies are envisioning for the next generation. It's really wonderfully global. Like the idea that the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that the chip industry can be reshored is just a, it seems absurd. This is an industry that, yeah, it's, it's so global. It's so interconnected, international, and not in any of the ways that you typically think are, quote unquote, or bad or anything, like you were saying before. The the workers aren't underpaid. This isn't what it's about. Yeah, I, I, I would I would caveat that with one distinction, which is that it's, it's, it's not so much global as it is international. Mm. Because there are lots of big countries that play basically no role in the process of making advanced ships. Uh, and you know, you think of major economies like India mm-hmm. or Brazil, mm-hmm. totally irrelevant when it comes to chip making. And even France, uh, Italy, they have some medium-sized chip makers. But when it comes to the most advanced ships, you can go a long way without touching major European economies too. And so that's what makes the industry interesting to political leaders mm-hmm. is that if you're one of the countries that has a unique position in the chip industry, you can use it because many of your trading partners don't have those capabilities. There is a bit of your book where you actually break out the numbers for the total market, total supply chain market share, which I wrote down because I was, I had no idea. There are basically three countries with significant market share in the semiconductor supply chain. Um, US is number one at 39%. Korea is number two at 16%. And Taiwan is number three at 12%, which like all of this talk about Taiwan has a monopoly on advanced semiconductor manufacturers. It does. That's true. But it's still only 12% of the of the total supply chain. And that's it, basically. China is like a distant fourth on 6%. Yep, that's that's right. And, and I think, you know, again, the, the sort of differentiation is that refers to dollar value. Uh, but that that doesn't reflect the fact that you can't produce an advanced ship in Taiwan or anywhere else without machines from the Netherlands or machines and materials from uh, Japan. And so uh, you know, Europe plays a small role in, in dollar terms, but it plays a absolutely critical role uh, in terms of uh, the production process because it would be impossible to make advanced ships without ASML tools. 
Yeah, there's there, there's a thing you talk about in the book a lot uh, that where you really illustrate where these choke points are and how easy it is to you know cripple the entire supply chain, and particularly the the company in the Netherlands that makes photolithography tools. It's it's striking that there's one company that does that, and it's completely irreplaceable. Do you think that this is what the industry looks like indefinitely, or is this just what it looks like now? Well, I think there's some some pretty deep set structural factors that lead to this um, this position of a small number of firms having really strong market positions. You know, first off, the the level of technical uh, expertise that's built up in these firms is just really really high. You you can't download a book on learning about EUV and, and make any progress in a short period of time. You kind of need to work with these companies to know how the stuff works, uh, and so it's it's hard to um, to develop expertise outside of these firms. Second, the capital investment is just enormous. A, a new chip making facility costs twenty billion dollars. You know, your startup is not going to raise twenty billion dollars, uh, and that's why in key parts of the chip industry, companies have been in their position for decades in many cases, um, because they've got unique expertise and they've got very, very expensive business models that really disincentivize uh, any startup competitors. One one of the things that's fascinating about the book is the way in which the senior executives that you write about invariably have advanced degrees in engineering or like particle physics or something from like top universities. The these, this isn't like the the managerial class. It wasn't until, I guess, the 1990s or maybe even the 2000s. There's this wonderful bit where Morris Chang, who's like basically, like, what is he at that point, the COO of Texas Instruments or something like that, he basically invents this important new thing called step photolithography um, by like hanging out at an, in, an industry conference and like talking to a vendor and saying, well, why don't you just do it like this? And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. And the idea that like, that the C-suite is getting its hands dirty in, in, in technological advances. Is that still the case? Well, it's an interesting question. It's certainly the case if you look at a TSMC, uh, where the leadership is uh, still all has backgrounds in electrical engineering or material science. For the chip design firms that, uh, that are the big players in U.S. industry, chip design is essentially a, a type of programming today. Uh, and so it's it's not the case that at most of the big chip designers, uh, you see people rolling up their sleeves because there's nothing to roll up your sleeves into. There's no, <laughs> no, no chemicals you're grabbing or, or, or tools you're using beyond your computer. And so that is a big change from the way it used to be. And, and as the industry has gotten more complex, it's had to have this differentiation between the designers and the manufacturers. But it does mean that the U.S. industry is much less physical uh, than it used to be because the U.S. focus has been on the chip design process. Can I also ask, um, There, I think there are like two women in the in the book total, I think. <laughs> is that just reflective of this industry or is it just a just completely male-dominated industry? Should I be worried about this industry? Uh, certainly. His, well, it's interesting. So historically, the the chip design process, the the manufacturing process was, ma was male dominated. The assembly process um, was almost all women in the early stages. Right. Um, first women in, in California, and then when they got too expensive, um, uh, women in Southeast Asia. Uh, so, so in some ways, it's not accurate to say that the woman, the industry was male dominated. Mm. The, the the leadership of the industry was was male dominated. I mean, uh, but literally the, the workers dominated by men. Dominated running yeah, the yeah. industry. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, has it changed? I, you know, it's changed somewhat. I think, um, 
you know, it's certainly far from uh, parity in terms of genders. There's a number of influential CEOs today who are women. AMD's Lisa Su, for example, is one of the most uh, successful chip CEOs of uh, of her generation. But but yeah, certainly it's a an industry that is, I think, far more so even than computer science, which has gotten its fair uh, its fair share of criticism. Mm -hmm. um, all right, let's do a quick numbers round. Um, Emily, yeah. you have an awesome number. What's your number? I'm really happy about my number. It's $6.25. Okay. Oh, that is the average cost in November of 16 ounces of potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only chip chips I have expertise in. <laughs> and um, that's pretty high, 625. It's up almost 20% from last year. And that's from the BLS, from the CPI. And and potato chips have a curiously starring role in your book, Chris, because they were like the 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 genesis of Micron. That's right. Yeah, that's the, right. Oh my gosh. The, the the guy who funded Micron made his fortune selling potatoes, actually mostly French fries, uh, to McDonald's. What we English people call chips. That's right. Um, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yeah, my number is ninety, and that's a percentage, and that's the amount percentage amount that eBay searches for Nikon Coolpix cameras have gone up because apparently Gen Zers now in their quest to adopt all the things that Gen Xers liked in the 90s have decided that point and shoot cameras are cooler than using your iPhone to document parties and things and so now they're buying them off the secondary market. They like that the photos look crappier. That's that's part of the art. Yeah, well, it's because they're all going to the Wolfgang Tillmans show at MoMA, and they're like, "Yeah, early digital photography. It had that vibe, man, which was which was amazing." Um, my number is one hundred and seventy nine, which is the number of expletives that were recorded on earnings calls in twenty twenty two which apparently is an all-time high. The CEOs are swearing more. <laughs> In 2012, it was just 48. Oh, shit. <laughs> this is a fucking big deal, I'm telling you. <laughs> What's going on? I Yeah, the, the, the fucking CEOs are fucking fed up. Um, Chris, we're going to let you come up with the final number here. All right, well, I've got a number for you. It's 457,329, which is the number of component parts in just the laser segment of an EUV lithography tool, which are used to make the most advanced chips. The, the laser stuff was crazy. They're, they're creating these like vacuums and firing lasers at microscopic tin balls and like focusing. I mean, it's, it's like science fiction stuff. The, the explosion that happens inside these tools is around 50 times hotter than the surface of the sun. And then we're like on our phones and we're like, this isn't working right. <laughs> it's just so unbelievable. How big are these machines? They're huge. They, they take uh, a couple of 747s to move. I, I, I have this vision now in my head of like two 747s like going up next to each other and dangling a machine between them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this has been fantastic. I want to do a Slate Plus segment on Moore's Law. But for those of us who aren't Slate Plus subscribers, Chris Miller, thank you so much for coming on this show. This has been incredibly enlightening. I We've, we've all learned so much. And um, I think, honestly, like, relatively optimistic. 
Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad you took away an optimistic conclusion. <laughs> With that, I think we'll wrap up the main part of Slate Money here. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for sending in emails, slatemoney at slate.com. And many thanks to Anna Phillips for producing, who's the best. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. So for Slate Plus, I want to talk a little bit about Moore's Law. Can you start off with, like, what is Moore's Law? So Gordon Moore, who's one of the co-founders of Intel uh, in 1965, noticed that the number of components or transistors on each chip was doubling uh, at the time annually. And he projected that this would uh, continue uh, for the next decade. So you'd have an exponential growth in the computing power produced by each chip over the subsequent decade. And that's proven true not only from 1965 to 1975, but basically all the way up to the present. Uh, the rate has slowed somewhat, but it's still doubling now every two years or so. Uh, and that makes chips different from basically all the rest of the economy because planes don't fly twice as fast every two years and um, nothing else kind of increases at, at, at that rate, but computing uh, capabilities have. And, and one of the fascinating things about Moore's law is that not only was he right that the number of transistors per chip would double every 18 months, but he was also right that the number of transistors per chip was this incredibly accurate way to measure computing power. And that like the amount of computing power that we get like per transistor like doesn't change. And that the 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 value we get from a chip is just a function of how many transistors there is on it. Yeah, that, that's basically right. Um, for a time, there was an increase in the speed at which chips could operate. So not just the number of transistors, but the speed at which turn on and off. Oh, yeah. Do, do, you remember, do you remember that thing back in like the PCs in the 1990s where they'd be like, they did all have like bigger numbers of how, how fast they were running. And then at, at a point, it just got uh, impossible to get more speed without producing excess heat. Uh, and so speed has basically plateaued uh, for the past couple of decades. Um, and so right now, it's just a question of the number of transistors you can add to your chip, which means making them ever smaller uh, is the key to increased computing power. Now, there's, there's one other nuance that, uh, that Gordon Moore set out in his article in 1965, which is that at the time, he wasn't actually, to be ultra-specific, he was talking about the number of components per chip or number of transistors per chip that produce the lowest average cost per transistor. Uh, and he said that number would uh, increase at an exponential rate. And what that implied is that you'd get a free lunch of computing power because your cost per transistor would decline uh, as you made them smaller and added more and more of them. And that relationship uh, held up until about a decade ago. So not only did we get more transistors on our chips and our chips became more powerful, but that the price didn't increase that much. And in fact, the price per transistor decreased. And that's no longer true. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, five years ago or so, uh, we stopped having decreasing price per transistors. And so now we, for the first time ever, we have to pay uh, for additions to computing power. Uh, and over time, if unless this relationship reverses and goes back to the prior Moore's law norm, this is going to have major implications uh, for the future computing. One one of the interesting twists to this, though, is that all of this advance in computing power, at least for most of the past 50 years, has been seen in what you call, well, yeah, what you call like general use logic chips, you know, the, the 
Intel x86 processors or the or, or, or whatever that you can just take and plug into a machine and then get them to do things. And the as we become more and more sophisticated in chip design and as chip design companies start multiplying and manage to work with companies like TSMC to make chips in much smaller quantities than we used to see, um, you can get like much more targeted results out of a specialized chip without necessarily having more transistors on it. Yeah, that that's right. And that's why you see companies like Apple designing their own ships or Amazon designing their own ships. Uh, the, the downside is that it's expensive to design your own ship. So if you want to design a cutting edge ship, uh, it'll cost you several hundred million dollars for design. And so that's something that few companies are willing to undertake. How, how many, like, I'm fascinated by this, like, was that the the thing that like Andreessen Horowitz tried to do in the early days of the crypto years with like 21 and all of that kind of stuff when they were like, we're going to create custom chips to mine Bitcoin and that's going to be our advantage. Um, I guess that didn't work out too well for them. Maybe it did. I have no idea. Yeah, no, there, there are custom Bitcoin mining chips um, uh, and, and you can get a performance increase by designing it yourself. Um, but if you, if you think of the number of use cases uh, that you'll be willing to pay several hundred million dollars for to get your performance advantage. It's a small number of use cases. And so one of the key questions is, you know, if it's getting harder to shrink transistors further, can we make the chip design process more efficient? Because that would be another way of getting the ability to apply computing power more efficiently to different parts of the economy. And, and do you think that we can? Do you think there's a Moore's law of chip design process? Well, there's a lot of focus right now in trying to understand how to apply AI to chip design. And you know, right now, chip design is, is already done by software. So it's, it seems uh, very plausible that there's plenty of more um, gains to be found in terms of automating chip design. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again for having me. 